and hello and welcome back to our third episode of Fossil Bonanza. My name is Andy Connolly and this is a podcast focused on amazing fossil sites from around the world called Fossil Lagerstätten. In each episode we look at one Lagerstätten, we learn why it's special, how these fossils became preserved, and what we can learn from these amazing sites. In the previous episode we looked at Beecher's trilobite bed and its golden trilobites, and while that site is pretty focused on a select group of fossils. For this episode, we are casting a wide net and actually looking at a whole ecosystem of animals. Pretty great. And for this episode, we are looking at holes made in Germany for the Posidonia Shale, one of the best, most recognizable fossil sites in the entire world. We will be looking at a variety of animals, and one of the focus of which are the ichthyosaurs, one of the most recognizable groups of animals in all of paleontology. Today's Lagerstadt hails from Germany near the small town of Holzmaden. The fossils are excavated from the Posidonia shale, which itself is spread throughout Europe. And although the Posidonia shale contains a multitude of fossils, it's the Holzmaden locality that is the most well-known within the paleontology community. We'll get into a moment later why Holzmaden is the most well-known, but I want to set the scene. The Posidonia shale was deposited during the Jurassic period, about 185 million years ago, over a period of about a half a million years. Back then, the ancient Tethy Sea separated the supercontinents of northern Laurasia and southern Gondwana land. During this time, much of Western Europe was submerged under the Tethys, forming an epicontinental seas that was rich with coral reefs. Reptiles like crocodiles took advantage of this oceanic paradise and exploded with diversity and abundance. Other reptiles, like the notable plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs, found so much success that they became the top predators of their food chain. Fish of all kinds swam the seas, such as sharks and even coelacanths, and the invertebrates were numerous as well, like the plant-like crinoids, the spiral-shelled ammonites, and wondrous squids. These creatures, including flying reptiles like the pterosaurs, and dinosaurs or plants, would float out to sea and be preserved in amazing detail at this fossil site. Their skin outline and body tissue are unmistakable. The detail is so remarkable that even squids can have their ink sacs and tentacles reproduced within the very rocks. It's very neat. So, how did all these animals get preserved, and why are they preserved in detail? Let's go into the literature and find out about this. And let me just say that, before I go any further, the literature on the Posidonia shale is dense. After all, this rock formation has been researched and mined for hundreds of years. So summarizing the Posidonia shale in a few paragraphs is uh, quite a feat. And I encourage all of my stratigrapher fans out there to read up on this complex but fascinating topic. It's really cool. The Posidonia shale itself is made up of organic shales broken up in limestone. The shale is incredibly dark due to pyrites and has a high concentration of organic material which has frequently been mined for oil. Now it may surprise you that despite the richness of life preserved in these specific layers of rocks, these rocks were actually formed in an inhospitable environment. The sea bottom was anoxic, meaning it lacked oxygen, and as such nothing could survive down there. One of the most telling signs of this is the rarity of fossilized organisms that lived on the seafloor, like reefs. Despite the occasional event where oxygen enriched the area, this was a dead zone. This dead zone gave us the foundation 
for these amazing fossils. When the marine animals die and fall to the seafloor, nothing would disturb them. There was no aerobic bacteria to eat away the skin and tissue, and there were no scavengers to rip apart the animals and scatter their limbs. So these animals would just sit there for thousands of years as they were slowly buried by sediment that would rain from above. Because of the delicate nature of the preservation, the fossils would be perfectly recreated in rock form, their skin and muscle carbonized, and their skeleton permineralized with pyrite and phosphate down to the tips of their tails. This is what makes the Posidonia shale special and one of the most famous Lagerstätten in the world. Their fossils can be found in European museums and across the world. Whole walls and murals are filled with its incredible animals, and documentaries and TV specials, like the famous Walking with Dinosaurs, praised this wonderful formation. Its historical influence cannot be understated. But why Holzmaden? After all, the shale covered a large swath of land. Does it have anything to do with geological exposure, or, or is there something extra special going down in Holzmaden? The answer to this question is rather complex, but emerges as a combination of social happenstance, geological uniqueness, and the influence of one man and his descendants. So, Posidonia shale quarries have been active for several hundred years in France and Germany. The Holzmaden site itself is a relative latecomer. But Holzmaden is lucky because the shale only has 30 centimeters of overburden on top of it, which makes it very easy to access. Compared that to other sites that may have tons of overburden and tons of useless material, Holzmaden seems pretty prospectable. The local shale itself also has a specific layer of rock called the Flains layer, and this is fantastic, and it was used for oven bases, flooring, windowsills, and even laboratory tables. This made it very profitable to mine, and the constant mining would even spark fires due to the high amount of kerogen, which could last for years. So naturally, as people were quarrying for these money-making shales, they would discover the amazing fossils which caught the interest of the nearby Tubingen University. The university had a strong geology and paleontology program and would regularly pay for these amazing fossils. The workers were thus incentivized to prepare these fossils carefully and sell the best ones to the university. One of these workers was a man named Bernard Hoff, who would become the most influential paleontologist in Holzmaden history. Ever since he was a child, Bernard Hauf, born 1866, was encouraged by his mother to look for fossils in his father's quarry. This was actually located near present-day Holzmaden, Germany. Although the quarry's purpose was to extract oil, it also yielded a bevy of well-preserved fossils that excited the inquisitive boy. These fossils were covered by shale and dirt, which had to be carefully removed through careful preparation. Thankfully, Bernard's enthusiasm was matched by his gifted patience and focus. He set out to work, preparing and cleaning these darkened fossils. His meticulous nature paid off, and in 1892, the true potential of the Holzmaden shells was realized. When he was 26 years old, Bernard prepared the first fossil of an ichthyosaur, complete with the perfect outline of its skin. It was called Stenoterigus, and at the time, 
The 1.2 meter long specimen became the most fantastic ichthyosaur fossil in the entire world. Contemporary paleontologist Dr. Eberhard Fraz of the State Museum of Natural History Stuttgart described this finding in the following opening sentence of his 1892 paper. Quote, I take the liberty of informing you all of a unique ichthyosaur which is capable of considerably expanding and transforming our knowledge of this strange group of animals, especially in relation to their outer appearance. End quote. Unmatched and unrivaled by its completion, its splendor, and its importance, this ichthyosaur and the thousands that would follow afterwards would become the Holzmaden Shale most recognizable mascot and would put it on the map as a fantastic loggerstadt. For Bernard Hauff, his passion, combined with his exquisite fossils, led to a once-in-a-lifetime success. He became so successful that he abandoned his oil endeavors and pursued fossil preparation full-time. His work led to him publishing his opus, Study of the Fossil Finds from Holzmaden in the Posidonia Shales of the Upper Lias of Württemberg in 1921, and for his research and work on the ichthyosaurs, the University of Tübingen awarded him an honorary doctorate. To this day, the Hauf name continues to influence the Holzmaden fossils, in 1937, Bernard Hauf and his son, Dr. Bernard Hauf Jr., built the first Hauf Museum. Jr. would take over as curator in 1950 after his dad passed away, and he reconstructed the Hauf Museum in 1971. Jr. and his son, Dr. Rolf Bernard Hauf, would continue to publish new fossil literature, and Rolf would take over as a new curator in 1990 after his dad passed away. And to this day, the Hauf family continues to positively influence the community by not only excavating and preparing fossils, but allowing the public to come in and look for fossils. It is wonderful to think that Holzmaden to this day contains a multi-generational tradition of enthusiasm, excitement, and passion for fossils. So now, let us ask the important question, what is an ichthyosaur? This is such a big question, as this is one of the most iconic ancient animals ever discovered. The influence that these swimming reptiles had on the advancement of paleontology in its toddler days should not be underappreciated and deserves an episode all to itself. But in short, an ichthyosaur is a marine reptile that swam in the oceans during the age of dinosaurs. Although it was contemporaneous with dinosaurs and has that notable soar suffix, it was not a dinosaur, rather an offshoot reptile that evolved alongside the dinosaurs. It looked remarkably like a dolphin, as it had a torpedo-shaped body, a pointy nose, and a powerful fluked tail. The comparisons are so striking that many introductory biological textbooks frequently compare the ichthyosaur with that of a dolphin and a swordfish as an example of convergent evolution. That is, species independently adopt similar and successful body plans for the purposes of survival. Even ichthyosaur's name denotes this similarity, fish lizard, 
a reflection of the then-debated classification that arose from its discovery. The earliest known ichthyosaurs arose in the early Triassic, about 20 million years ago before the first dinosaurs. Already, they were adapted for a marine life, with their dolphin-shaped forms, long nose and tails, and limbs modified it into fins. After the devastating Permian extinction, the ichthyosaur ancestors quickly took to the seas and shed their terrestrial adaptations. Overnight, they became successful, reaching cosmopolitan levels of distribution and occupying various niches, including apex predator status. Although they found fantastic levels of success in the Triassic and Jurassic, they became extinct during the Cretaceous period due to competition from other marine reptiles and a mini-extinction event that stressed their way of life. Perhaps one of the most distinguishing traits of the ichthyosaur are their eyes. Both in absolute and relative to body size, ichthyosaurs had the largest eyes out of any animal. The largest recorded was about 26 centimeters, or just over 10 inches long, which is absolutely insane. By comparison, the largest eye from a living animal is the blue whale clocking in at 15 centimeters, which is quite a bit smaller. Paleontologists infer that ichthyosaurs were probably deep divers and used their eyes to see low light conditions. Very cool. So, what made Hauff's 1892 specimen so unique and influential was his exceedingly excellent preservation. It was so perfect that it confirmed the existence of a fluked tail. You see, relatively decent ichthyosaur fossils would usually have a little kink on the end of its tail pointing downwards. Some scientists before this discovery equated this to simple rigor mortis and would even correct this bend to make it straight. Early artistic interpretations of ichthyosaur would even have them with this straight tail. With the skin outline preserved, not only do we see a fluke tail, but a dorsal fin as well. The fluke tail was one of the many things that we learned about ichthyosaurs thanks to the Posidonia shale. To put it bluntly, the Hosmaden ichthyosaurs changed the name of the fish lizard game. It was as if the Hosmaden quarry pushed the turbo button of advancement and we took off without a second thought. The shale had taught us so many things about ichthyosaurs, including their diets, their life cycle, and even their color. So, first, many of the Stenoterygaea specimens, amazingly, were preserved with their lunch. Inside them, you can find belemnite hooks and fish scales, leftovers of the ichthyosaur's lunch. For those of you unfamiliar with belemnites, they were cephalopods related to squids. Although extinct now, they were quite numerous during the age of dinosaurs. And other marine animals like plesiosaurs also had belemnite hooks in their body. The fossilized hooks were on the belemnite's tentacles and were used to grab and hold small prey. Since the hooks were harder than the softer body of the belemnites, these hooks were easily preserved within the ichthyosaur's gut. Amazingly, Holzmaden also tells us that ichthyosaurs were more similar to dolphins than we realize. This is, I love this, this is, this is great. Okay, so a 2018 multidisciplinary study titled, quote, Soft Tissue Evidence for Homeothermy and Crypsis in a Jurassic Ichthyosaur revealed that ichthyosaurs had blubber based on chemical and structural analysis of fossilized tissue. This is amazing because this supports that ichthyosaurs had homeothermy, or a warm-blooded lifestyle. 
You see, blubber is great for marine animals as it acts as an insulator against the cold waters and can be used to metabolize energy for energetic activity. Ichthyosaurs likely use their blubber additionally to streamline their bodies and make them more torpedo-shaped, similar to dolphins. And as a quick side note, I also found out while doing research for this episode that leatherback turtles also have blubber, so that's pretty cool. So it's not just a one-time thing. Other reptiles do this as well. I love that. That is just blows my mind. So this same study additionally concluded that ichthyosaurs likely had a lighter colored body and a darker colored back based on the presence of fossilized cells called melanophores. Now, melanophores are specialized pigment cells which can cause color change in an animal's body. It's useful in camouflage, body temperature regulation, and ultraviolet radiation filtration. And it's likely ichthyosaurs could change color in response to their environment. Hmm. The skin tissue also revealed that ichthyosaurs lost their trademark reptilian scaly skin and instead had a very smooth, very slick skin, great for reducing drag in the water. Which, again, leatherback sea turtle does this as well. So, that is all very cool. That is all wonderful. But perhaps the most spectacular finds for the holes made in quarry are the ichthyosaurs preserved with embryos. And I'm not talking about ichthyosaurs fossilized near baby ichthyosaurs. I'm talking actual fossils of ichthyosaur embryos inside their mother. And it's not just one fossil. There are dozens upon dozens of mother ichthyosaur specimens with embryos still inside of them. A single mother could even have up to 11 embryos at once stored in their uterus. Sometimes, the embryos would be in perfect articulated precision, like their moms. And sometimes they would be shattered, disconnected, and lay alongside their mother like a jumbled puzzle. Traditionally, the Holes Maiden site has been viewed as a Stenoterigaeus nursery site. Of course, the main evidence of this is the high amount of expecting mothers and juveniles, but we can look at other pieces of evidence as well. Since the fossils are in great condition and don't show any kinds of stress before dying, we can propose that the ichthyosaurs died very near their burial site and not violently carried off by some storm. We also see periodic accumulations of mothers over time, suggesting that they may have returned here when expecting. Now, this hasn't been rigorously investigated. This may be disproven, this may be further supported in the future, so either way, this is a very cool concept to think about. Regardless if this was a nursery site or not, this is still pretty incredible. And it may not surprise you that many paleontologists at the time thought that these embryos were not embryos, but were actually cannibalized by the adults. We can easily put this to rest based on the anatomical position of the embryos and the Bolemnite books that I talked about earlier. Paleontologist Ronald Botcher published a study translated, quote, new information on the reproductive biology of ichthyosaurs. He published this in 1990 where he tackled this question and concluded after studying 46 mothers that not only were the young Stenoterigaeus embryos, but there was no way the adults could swallow them. 
the babies were too big and the throat and stomach were too small. I also want to emphasize 46 mothers. That's a lot. That's a lot. You, I, to think you had 46 specimens on hand waiting to be researched is just, I love it. It's just great. It's incredible. This is why, uh, this is why Posidonia Shale is one of my favorite sites because it preserves these animals so well in such vast numbers. It's amazing. Back to his study, though, the research suggests that not only did the Stenoteri guys refrain from cannibalization, but the adults and children weren't even eating the same foods. Based on the tooth morphology and stomach contents, the young Stenoteri guys would mainly eat small fish, but once they're full grown, they would only eat squids and other cephalopods. This is incredible adaptation. And what's great about it is it ensures healthy offspring growth by limiting competition from the same species. It's really cool. I should stress how amazing this find is because not only is it very hard to get diet data in the fossil record, we got it here for adults and kids as well. What's interesting though is that based on the embryo's positioning, they were likely born tail first into the ocean. Many of the fossils have the embryos arranged with their head pointing towards the mother's head. And guess what? Dolphins also birth their young tail first, although there are exceptions, like a lot of things in biology. This is done to help minimize the drowning for air-breathing animals. I just love it how the dolphin analogy just keeps coming back. Like, you think it's just like, oh, it's just the shape, but no, it's like the blubber and the birthing process. Ugh, evolution's great. Anyway. There are a few fossilized Dinoteri Gaias which shows the moment of birth. One example of this is an incredible fossil of a mother displayed out neatly in the black shale. Her flipper digits still connected, her ribs arranged in parallel arcs, and her vertebrae are sweeping outward to a thin tail that turns neatly downward, forming the lower fluke. Her baby is displayed in similar perfection with the biggest flaw being its tail, which slightly twists around in an awkward angle. The baby's body is out except for its tiny mouth, whose long jaws still reside within the mother. This is called viviparity, or live birth, as opposed to oviparity, which is egg hatching. Although there is debate about how much of these fossilized births are actual births as opposed to decaying discharge, there's no doubt that the ichthyosaurs gave live birth, and it may surprise you that live birth was probably one of the most important adaptations for ichthyosaurs. Let's rewind a little bit. Fossilized evidence suggests that ichthyosaurs evolved live birth relatively early in their history, even before they took to the sea. There is even a very primitive ichthyosaur from the early Triassic that was also preserved with live birth. Only in this case, the embryo was coming out head first, like a land animal, and not tail first, like a marine animal. Why is this important? Well, think of a sea turtle. Sea turtles have to crawl onto land, lay their eggs, bury their eggs, and return back to the sea. A very arduous process. This means that the sea turtles have to be able to both swim and be able to move on land. But for ichthyosaurs, they can forgo land altogether. Nothing's holding them back. 
Because they could give live birth, they quickly evolved their fish-like features and soon became dominant animals in the water, all because of live birth. The Stenoteri Gaius fossils are among the most amazing and awe-inducing fossils in the world. Their beauty can be appreciated by anyone. And you can take away a deep sense of awe and wonder from them. As I reflect on these wonderful fossils, I can't help but compare House ichthyosaurs with Beecher's trilobites from the previous episode. Two Lagerstaaten, although vastly different in time period, location, and animals preserved, are united by their significance. They reveal crucial information like an animal's appearance, their digestive system, and their life cycle. Their findings push the field of paleontology forward leaps and bounds, breaking down old ideas and building new ones in its place. And finally, their importance was fully realized in the 1890s, led by a passionate scientist with a steady hand and a lot of patience. Just brings a smile to my face just thinking about these amazing fossil sites. With my appreciation and gushing of ichthyosaurs, well and satisfied, I want to turn now to the other animals that lived alongside the fish lizards in our ancient European seas. Because of the Posidonia's shale unique conditions, we are seeing a bit of a bias in who gets fossilized and who doesn't. Remember, the prevailing hypothesis of the Posidonia shale is the anoxic sea bottom, which led to the fantastic preservation of fossils. However, that means we're seeing a lot of animals who may have swum above the ocean floor, like our ichthyosaurs, and not a lot of animals who may have lived on the bottom, like clams, who would have found the conditions too intolerable. Now true, there are a few fossilized animals that likely lived on the seafloor, but they are few and far between compared to those who live near the water's surface. Before I get into those animals though, I want to introduce a new vocabulary that paleontologists frequently use to describe oceanic creatures and their ecological niches. Broadly speaking, we can divide an oceanic creature's lifestyle into one of three categories, plankton, nekton, and the benthic zone. Planktonic creatures are those who freely float in the water, like dust particles in the air. They don't have full control of their movement, but that's not necessary for them to survive. They can consume other floating microparticles and some of them get their energy from the sunlight. Organisms like algae, bacteria, and jellyfish are examples of this group. Meanwhile, nectonic creatures are those who can freely swim in the various oceanic depths. Their movement is not defined by oceanic currents, but by their own movement. The classic fish, whales, and sea turtles easily fit this category. Finally, the benthic zone encompasses animals that live at the bottom of the ocean, but can also include lake and river bottoms. Epiphanobenthos are organisms who live on the sediment surface, while infanobenthos are those who live beneath the sediment. A whole host of organisms include this group, like coral, sponges, crabs, clams, starfish, and so forth. You get the idea. As you can tell, you, you don't have to be closely related to each other to be in a certain niche. A lot of animals actually transition from one niche to another as they grow older. Uh, remember the trilobites from the last episode? The baby triarthus would have a planktonic lifestyle as they float in the water, but as they grow older, they would slowly settle to the seafloor and move around as a benthos creature. So in our case, for this episode, 
we're seeing favoritism towards nectonic and planktonic animals due to their independence from the seafloor. As such, we can reconstruct some of the ancient ecosystems to get an idea of what this Jurassic community looked like. Uh, first, what few benthic creatures we have include bottom-feeding fish, burrowing bivalves like clams, and very small snails, sea urchins, and brittle stars. But these fossils are few and far between, and only need a passing mention for the purpose of this episode. But more numerous and interesting are hitchhiking invertebrates. We see a number of brachiopods, which look like clams but are a completely different group of animals, bivalves, and crinoids who latch themselves onto floating logs or debris and just float on the water's surface. As this weird organic floatsome carries on, they feed off of the rich plankton life, grow, and release floating larvae who begin the hitchhiking process all over again. Some paleontologists even argue that bivalves latch onto living ammonite shells and get a free ride as the ammonites swim around. Very cool. One of the more important group of animals in our case are the crinoids. Now, in a future episode, I'll probably go into crinoids a little bit more in detail, as they are a very amazing and successful group of animals, but I want to give them a special shout-out here. So let me just start with a few basic things here. Crinoids are probably the second most recognizable fossil from the Posidonia shale, just behind the ichthyosaurs. You may have heard them before referred to as sea lilies, and they kind of look like a plant but are actually related to starfish. They typically have a long stalk attached to the ground, a bulbous head where the mouth and anus is, and long feathery tentacles that extend from its quote-unquote head. They use their feathery tentacles to eat by suspension feeding and capture small particles of food in the water. Now, although crinoids are still alive today, they were nowhere near as dominant as they once were millions of years ago. Now, normally, when a crinoid dies, its soft tentacles rot away, and the oceanic currents would disrupt the stalk and scatter it into many disc-like pieces called columnos. The columnos are usually the only crinoid fossil you'll find, and even then it's just a jumbled mess, which makes it nearly impossible to reconstruct the original crinoid. Where I grew up from in Kansas, you can find crinoids by the thousands in nearby rocks. Uh, Kansas used to be underneath an ancient ocean, actually several times in its history, and you can find a lot of cool invertebrate fossils, including the crinoids. So I have a special love for them, in all honesty. But in this case, though, the crinoids aren't jumbled up, but are connected. And if it wasn't for the numerous and jaw-dropping ichthyosaurs, Holzmaden would likely have been known for their crinoids. But alas, they are second fiddle. But that's not right. Let's give them the love that they deserve. There are two species of Holzmaden crinoids, Cyrocrinus and Pentacrinus. Of the two, Cynocrinus is the most common, and we'll just be focusing on that one. I really want to stress how incredible these fossils are. Huge, I'm talking huge, slabs of rock have been found displaying these fossils. And the crinoids on them are incredible. The Hauf Museum has by far one of the largest slabs of rock in the world displaying these crinoids. It is incredible. The slab of rock itself is about 18 by 6 meters. But what's really special is on the rock itself. There's a very large 12 meter long driftwood, which is just filled to the brim with bivalves and about 280 crinoids. That's insane. 
This whole slab took 18 years to prepare before it was finally displayed in the museum in 1970. These huge slabs take up museum walls and are so large it's hard to take photographs encompassing the whole thing. I highly encourage you to look at a photo of one of them, which I will provide on my website, as it's incredible. A mass of crinoids just erupts from the engulfed driftwood and creates a mural of stalks that intertwines and spreads outward from the dense center. And the crinoids can be incredibly long, the longest of which was about 20 meters across. It's fantastic. With these incredible dense clusters of bivalves and crinoids, some paleontologists question the floating log hypothesis and wonder if the crinoids instead grew off of the sunken log on the seafloor. There are actually many pieces of strong evidence that support a floating log hypothesis and not a seafloor one. First, the crinoid size is proportional to the log size, meaning larger logs will have larger crinoids. This means the large logs are able to support larger crinoids. Pretty simple. Additionally, the crinoids themselves are incredibly light compared to their dense bivalve roommates. So even massive crinoids would only have a small effect on the log's floating capabilities. Next, modern relatives of the fossilized driftwood have been observed floating a minimum of a couple years and could theoretically stay afloat for up to 10 years. This may not seem like enough time, but the Cyrocrinus likely rapidly matured within their first year of birth as indicated by their growth lines, which is basically kind of like looking at the growth lines of a tree. And finally, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence, I think, is that many of the logs are discovered on top of the crinoids. And if they had grown off the logs on the seafloor, then the crinoids should have been buried on top of them instead. This means that as the logs eventually sank, the crinoids would get tangled up and some of them would get buried underneath the logs. I love it. This is just fantastic science in action here. So cool. So all this information came from an article written by Dr. Michael Sims in 1986, and it's one of my favorite articles I have read for this episode. He looked at that argument of a plankton versus benthic life and systematically argues for the plankton hypothesis by using evidence from taphonomy, structural morphology, ontogeny, and geology to make his case. I did not include all his points here, but I do recommend you guys to check out the article, which again, I shall provide a link to on my website. The crinoids weren't the only invertebrates in our Sea. We also have the nectin-based, or free-swimming, cephalopods like squids, belemnites, and the iconic ammonites. Mollusks in general make up the most common animal fossil in the Posidonia shale, and you can get some really nice specimens. One of my favorites are fossils of the squid-like Clarketihuthis. Woof, we'll go with that. Anyway, there's a fossil of this that was still in the process of attacking its prey. I love this. Four separate fossils have been found with fish still enwrapped in their tentacles. And what's really cool is that these ancient squids attack their prey like some modern squids. They bring their prey close to their mouth and cut into the fish's spine with its sharp beak, paralyzing it. However, through either inactive movement of the squid or the deflation of the fish's swim bladder, the two sank to the bottom of the ocean where the squid died from the oxygen-deprived conditions. The two would lay buried, still entangled in their life-and-death struggle. And now we come to the vertebrates. 
our last group of Nectin animals. Obviously, fish are very common here and come in many varieties with over 20 species documented. As mentioned before, many of their scales have been documented in the stomachs of ichthyosaurs and as regurgitate, which is quite fascinating. We also find shark fossils, which is quite impressive. The shark's cartilage body normally rots away, but here we see a nice black outline of them, which gives us an idea what they looked like and how big they were. Then there's our marine reptiles. We've tackled one of them, obviously, the ichthyosaurs. But let's look at the other ones. Plesiosaurs and marine crocodiles compete with the ichthyosaurs for resources. However, their presence is much rarer. Plesiosaurs were among the top predators of this ocean, and likely ate fish, squids, and ichthyosaurs depending on the species. The largest of which was Romelosaurus, which could grow up to 7 meters long. Of particular note are the crocodiles, where some of them have the amphibious lifestyle of modern crocs, and others have adapted to a fully marine life. The most common crocodile is the Steniosaurus, which had a long and narrow snout like a gavial and likely caught fish by ambushing them and quickly trapping them in their toothy jaws. So impressive are the Steniosaurus that they serve as a mascot of sorts for the Erfeld Museum Hauf as seen on their website, museum logos, and street signs. And in fact, that's where the logo for Fossil Bonanza comes from. I was particularly enamored by one of the fossils of the Steniosaurus, and when I was in the process of making the logo for Fossil Bonanza, I showed my artist friend uh, many different fossils from different Lagerstadt, and she liked the Steniosaurus from Holzmaden, and I can't blame her there. It's definitely one of my favorite fossils that's uh, ever been found, and it's just so amazing and perfect. I, I love it a lot. It's great. I, in general, I just love Holzmaden, and, and it's just so cool, all the wonderful animals you can find here. The funny thing about Steniosaurus, too, is that it's kind of like a wastebasket animal right now. Basically, people just identify a marine crocodile as a Steniosaurus, even though different species may not be closely related to each other. So there's some sorting out that needs to be done to kind of help figure out who is related to whom and is this crocodile a Steniosaurus or not. And that's a whole nother issue that I won't even touch right now. And finally, we conclude our episode with the non-marine animals. There was only one dinosaur found in Posidonia Shale, and that was a tibia belonging to a long-necked dinosaur called Omdenosaurus, which was named after the nearby village it was found. More interesting are the two species of flying reptiles, Dorignathus and Cambliognathoides, which are only known from a few specimens but are preserved amazingly well. Uh, it's likely that they quickly sank after they drowned in the ocean, as they're found with their bones mostly intact in amazing flashy dance-like poses. Pew pew! I'm, of course, uh, hoping that we'll continue to find more of these flying critters and learn more about their airborne lives. The Posidonia Shale continues to deliver new insight into the life and times of these ancient Jurassic creatures. Even now, over 100 years after their discovery, we're still learning new things about their fossils that's tinkering our current perspective. Within the last 10 years, we have seen newly described species of plesiosaurs, squids with fish still in their tentacles, and ichthyosaurs with blubber. It just floors me. The quality and quantity of these fossils has allowed us to reconstruct almost every aspect of their life, a feat that few fossil sites can achieve. Who knows what new information awaits for us? Perhaps we'll learn new things about the life of a plesiosaur, a new species of a crocodile, or maybe a crinoid that's over 50 meters long. That would be crazy. Whatever the case, I'll be looking forward to it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Fossil Bonanza. 
These episodes take a lot of time to research, write, and produce. So if you like this episode and want to see more, please subscribe, leave a comment, and heck, tell me a time you were fossil collecting. I would love to hear from you guys. And if you leave a comment on my blog or any of the podcasting websites, I'll read it for at the end of the next episode. Uh, hopefully <laughs> there won't be too many. Otherwise, I may have put my foot in my mouth, but we'll see. I just, I just got started after all. I want to give a very special thank you to Dr. Maxwell and Dr. Masare, who gave me insight on the ichthyosaurs and the Holzmaden site, which helped me very greatly for this episode's research. Also, I'll be releasing a transcript of this episode on my blog, so if you know anyone that may benefit from a transcript, make sure to send them my way. I always love to talk about fossils, and I always like it to make sure everyone gets a chance to learn and appreciate and gush about these cool and amazing fossils. It's just great. And finally, I'll be leaving a list of references that I used for this episode on my website. Uh, most of these references you can find on Google Scholar that they are going to be available to the public. Some you can't, but I'll try to make sure that if there's a document available that you guys can read it. I want to say everyone, thank you again so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am excited for next time because it's going to be a two-parter episode. We're going to be doing our first Amber episode. That's right, we're going to do Amber. The next episode is going to cover uh, amber in general. The following episode is going to cover the Dominican amber. So if you want to learn about how amber preserves animals, all the different things that we can learn from amber, definitely check that out. It's going to be wild. It's going to be incredible. And I'll see you guys next time. Have a great day. Thank you.